This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. This week on Trial Lawyer Nation, our guest is Michael Watts, one of the best trial lawyers in this country. When I was growing up as a plaintiff's lawyer, I started doing plaintiff's law back in 97. Michael Watts is who I wanted to be. I remember when he got his first $80 million verdict, fuel-fed fire case down in Star County, Texas, and from there, he did Ford Firestone, became, just was knocking out eight-figure, nine-figure verdicts right and left, became the man in Texas and now nationally. He's got so many huge verdicts, and he was kind enough to come in here and tell his things that I really would have liked to know when I was building up my own practice. He's going to talk about how he's gotten those verdicts, and equally important, I think he's going to talk about how he's built his practice up and kind of some of the sacrifices he's had to make and which ones he thinks were worth it and which ones he doesn't think were worth it. I think those of us that are building up our own practices are going to get a lot out of this. I know I did. So here's our interview with Michael Watts. I really appreciate you coming on today, Michael. Glad to be here. Um, and let's just kind of start from the beginning. Well, uh, I guess the first thing is, how did you get here? I mean, you Start off, you left David Perry's office, you didn't have a bunch of money in the bank. Uh, how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I left when I was 29 years, eight months old. Um, I was cleaning my office and I found a note that I wrote myself uh, the day I showed up at David Perry's office when I was 21. And uh, it had a series of goals about how much money I wanted to be making and how many verdicts I wanted to have. Uh, and one of the goals was to have my own law firm by the time I was 30. And I just stared at it for over an hour, and I realized that if I didn't leave, um, what was a very good situation, there was no reason to leave. He was fair. He paid me well, uh, good opportunities. But if I didn't leave, that uh, when I turned 40, I was still going to be there and still wondering. So uh, I went into his office. Um, and uh, actually, I, I drove up to his ranch. I went into his office. He wasn't there. And uh, he was up at his ranch. And, and that was the hardest thing I'd ever had to do at the time is, is tell him I was leaving. Uh, and I just showed him the note. I said, this is the only reason I'm leaving. So uh, I left with $10,000 in the bank, and that was it. And three kids at home. My wife thought I was crazy. Yeah. So, um, you know, we took the plunge, and it was the most exhilarating uh, year of my life. Uh, you feel like you're... Swimming in quicksand, uh, but uh, it's the most exciting swim you've ever done, and you work harder, and there's nothing better than uh, working for a boss you really like. Uh, <laughs> so, so we made the plunge. Uh, and, uh, you know, literally uh, picked a, an office location that was right across the street from the courthouse because back then everybody had law libraries before uh, everything was digital. Uh, and I didn't want to pay for one because didn't have the money for one. So literally did the legal research by walking across the parking lot to the Noises County Courthouse and using the free books. Uh, so that's where I chose my office uh, and why. And then literally had my outdoor picnic furniture uh, in the office. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, was, it was Spartan to say the least uh, until uh, about four months in. We got into a beauty contest on a big uh, a double death case uh, that involved a post-collision fuel-fed fire in a Dodge truck, and and the other big 
Corpus firms were all there, and so uh, literally, uh, we. My mom was officing in the same building at the time before she became a judge, and over the weekend we moved all of her furniture up into my office and all of my furniture down into her office. And these guys from California came in and and uh, uh, we put our best foot forward to try to get this big case, <laughs> <laughs> and somehow talked them into it. And that was my first big case uh, Thanks, in Bob. my own firm. And it turned out to be uh, pivotal because uh, we got the case. Uh, we tried it to an eighty million dollar verdict, uh, and I've been busy ever since. So, so I guess the. Say the keys were taking the plunge, getting the big case, and then having the intestinal fortitude to try it. Yeah, and I think one of the other keys is is if you decide you're going to start your own firm, you've got to go all in. Um, you delay things like uh, fancy cars, boats, second houses, vacations. Uh, you got to throw your heart, your mind, your soul, and all your money into building a business from scratch. Uh, you know, one of the tough things about the way our tax laws are structured is that when you and I put fifty, dollars $100,000 into a case and, and once you pass January 1st, that's taxable income, uh, the fact that it's gone in, in, in some expert's pocket doesn't matter. You can't write it off. Uh, and so, you know, effectively you have this incredible tax rate where you're, you're being taxed on income that you're not seeing because you're investing it in cases. Uh, and, and I remember for the course of several years, my wife, you know, signing our tax returns and looking at these incredibly uh, uh, powerful numbers that she knew wasn't coming home. She says, where's it all going? And I said, it's going right back into the cases. And, you know, uh, you got $5 million in cases. It's something that uh, you've you got to be taxed on. So, And that is, you, you, how long did you drive that same pickup truck? After? Yeah, I drove a 1987 Dodge Ram 50 that uh, uh, I literally bought in college because it was $137 a month. Uh, and uh, kept it until 2002. Uh, so I had my own firm for five years by then and and um, one of my law partners finally uh went out and bought me a truck and he says we're not going to get any referrals with you driving that piece <laughs> of crap around <laughs> so, so it was abandoned but it's really deferring that gratification i mean i'm sure you got a decent settlement out of that 80 million dollar verdict while it was up on appeal uh, i probably can't say what it was but yeah i mean a lot of people would have just gone out and right then bought a fancy car bought a fancy house yeah, you know, I mean, there was a time when I started doing that, but but between 1997 and 2001, uh, I lived like a Spartan and worked like a dog, uh, and you know, worked hard to build a law firm, uh, and and tried case after case after case after case because I felt like that was the fastest way to be able to build the 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 brand from the standpoint of marketing uh, was just jury verdicts. It's the best advertising tonic there is, and so that's all I did was try cases. And that is the. I agree the jury verdicts are the best uh, way to get yourself out there if you can win, uh, which is not so easy nowadays. What's First of all, what, what are some of the verdicts that uh, I know you got really hot for a while. You're just eight, nine-figure verdicts, one after another. Right. Uh, what are some of the ones that you're most proud of? Well, uh, the, the, the first one that I tried with my new firm was a double-death uh, fire case uh, where we got an $80 million verdict against Chrysler. Um, that one will always be, um, you know, the most special because it was the first. Uh, you know, there were some big refinery verdicts, some big uh, automotive verdicts, some big pharmaceutical verdicts. Um, but in Texas, of course, it's a challenge, right? Uh, in most states, you take a verdict and you've got an even up shot of holding on to it. In Texas, it's it's merely a bargaining chip uh, from which to negotiate before Nathan Heck decides to take it away on appeal when he gets to the Texas Supreme Court. So. Uh, you've got to be careful in the state of Texas, but uh, you know we, we've always tried to try uh, a, 
a significant number of cases um, because I'll never forget in 1995 uh, when I was still working at my old firm, uh, I went and played golf with a um, an insurance adjuster. Uh, uh, my friend Jeff Wigington and David Rumley have got their own firm now. Uh, we were all golfing buddies back then, and, and they did some insurance work for, I don't remember which which carrier, but uh, uh, we thought 1995 was big tour reform. We didn't have an idea what was coming in 2003, but, but I remember the guy told me he has every insurance company has a sheet of paper and they draw a line down the middle of it and they put all the lawyers names on one side of that line or not and I said well what's the line it's like the line is who will try the cases and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that line and I, I remember that stuck with me um, so I've always tried to you know try enough cases to let everybody know we're still doing it um, but there's a flip side uh, when you're married and you're raising three kids uh, and you're gone constantly that's that's not um, good for a marriage. Uh, and I used to pick a lot of fights that I don't pick anymore. I'm, I'm better at settling cases than I used to be. Right. Although my, my law partner still says I'm the worst mediation lawyer ever, you know, so we'll see. Well, when you get a string of big verdicts over decades, it's probably gets a little easier to settle up too. Well, it does. Um, but you know, the, the, the mountains you're climbing change, I guess. Um, but you know, verdicts are a mean to an end. Uh, I, I, I plead guilty that when I was in my 30s, a lot of it was uh, ego-driven and business-building-driven. Uh, uh, now I look at it much more as a means to an end to try to get you know maximum dollars for clients. Uh, and it's not so much about Michael Watts as it is about Michael Watts' clients. Uh, you, you get a few of those, you know, those verdicts uh, reversed on appeal for no good reason, and you start, uh, it's like a cold shower. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you have to be a lot more careful in the state of Texas, uh, which is probably why I try so many cases outside the state of Texas now. <laughs> yeah. And are there some keys? I mean, you've been one of the few people that have consistently gotten really big verdicts, and, and not just in one area, but, I mean, you know, there's people that are really good trucking lawyers or really good pharmaceutical lawyers, but you've done it in medical devices, pharmaceuticals, trucking, refinery, uh, auto crashworthiness, I mean, it's not like a subject matter expertise. You just had a knack of getting big verdicts. So what are some of the keys? Yeah, you know, I, I tell people the joke that, you know, you start off, you're doing personal injury work, and then you go into product liability work, and then you go into pharmaceutical work, and then class actions or, or patents or commercial litigation. And, and the joke is, is that every time you go into a new area, the people that are in those areas say, oh, my gosh, the, the lawyers here are the smartest, they're the most expensive, they've got the most money, they're the toughest, the experts, you know, the science. Uh, you know, this is just the hardest area of law ever. And, and what they're really saying is refer your case to me, don't come into my sector. Right. And what I've realized is that's all nonsense. Um, regardless of what the subject matter is, a trial is a trial is a trial. Uh, all that we are doing is we are the uh, vehicles of communicating our client's story. Um, and that's really all it is, is it's a story um, that needs to be communicated. Uh, the people that we represent uh, have suffered unspeakable tragedies uh, or lost huge amounts of money because of the conduct of others. Uh, and our challenge is to take complex subject matter uh, and, and distill it down to a simple message. And, and I think that that's what I try to focus on is, is that the biggest criticism that I hear of lawyers is uh, they try to talk at people. Um, and, and I think juries can pick up a fraud. Uh, I mean, the jury system is just so brilliant. Uh, you put 24 eyes on any set of facts, and 
it's the best bullshit meter ever invented. Um, but it's not just with respect to your arguments, it's with respect to your integrity and, and juries can sense uh, a lawyer that's putting one over on them. And so you've got to be honest, uh, you've got to talk uh, in a way that's not talking down to jurors, um, but is, is communicating with them at their level. Uh, and you've got to do it with absolute honesty and show your warts, tell them what your strengths are. Uh, and uh, trials more than anything are a contest for credibility between the two lead lawyers. Um, and if you win that contest, you're going to win the case. The simplicity is, and I remember when I was getting into the product liability world, and you were generous enough to share a lot of things with me, uh, depositions. And I remember the first time I was reading a trial transcript, you know, because I'd gone to these seminars, and there's people talking about all this complex stuff, and I'm thinking you have to really master and talk all this complex stuff. And then I read one of your transcripts, and my first thing, well, What's you know, how's he winning these cases? It sounds so simple. And it yeah. took me, like, years to realize to take the complex, understand it, and then make it simple is the art. Yeah. You know, um, I go to Oak Hills Church where Max Lucado is the pastor, and, and I enjoy watching him preach because everything is a metaphor. Uh, whatever, you know, biblical theme of the day is, he can bring it right down into something very simple. And, and I don't care how complex the science is, uh, how complex uh, the engineering is, uh, there are ways to bring those concepts down to something simple. Uh, my brother and I try a lot of uh, tire cases, um, and he's got this wonderful full head of hair, and of course I'm bald as can be. And you know when you talk about a, a, a detread of a tire and the, and the physics that are involved in terms of the lack of, uh, of friction on the roadway and everything like that, I mean, I'll literally go up and, and I'll start putting my hands in my brother's hair, and I said, this is a full tread. And, and look at all this friction, and then I'll just slide my hand over my bald head and there's no, you know, there's no friction. There's no, you know, and juries just die laughing, but they get the point, you know. And and there's always the ability, whatever the engineering is that's involved, uh, to take a complex notion and make it very simple. And and that's what you should do. Sorry to kind of, kind of keep going from wildly divergent topics. No, you're but good. One, one thing that uh, really surprised me when I kind of got to know you. I remember I'd always heard like Michael Watts, Michael Watts, big verdict, you know, flying in jets and all this other cool stuff and you know first time like well can I even will this guy even talk to me you know and, and the first time I met you at a conference you're having a beer and it was like what a light it wasn't even like a fancy beer and you're like, hey, <laughs> come on have a beer with us and just like talking to like a normal guy you just you don't have any errors you're not stuck up I mean you share with other lawyers even though you know you could very easily have said I had my first Ford case and you had tried and got a verdict on there, and you had let me go to your you had an office in Brownsville at the time. I lived in Brownsville at the time. You let me go to your office and look at all your exhibits, and all, you didn't ask me for anything. And, uh, you know, you could have very easily said, well, I'm the Ford lawyer. Why, why am I going to let somebody else take these cases that I'm already wanting to make money on? And you didn't do that. How, do you, how have you stayed so, I guess, generous and down to earth? Well, you know, you and I have both been part of a group called the Attorney's Information Exchange Group, and there's kind of an ethos that you share everything. And... It really offends me as I get into these federal MDLs uh, about everybody tagging everybody for common benefit fees and this and that. It's you know the, the the best way to do a good job for our clients is to disseminate information, and uh, I share everything that I've got. But I can assure you uh, that I have been the recipient of sharing um, in ways that have made me uh, an incredible amount of money. I'll never forget it. Um, I, in 1990. 
eight, I think, I went to Alaska, I mean to Hawaii to give a speech. And uh, the Attorney's Information Exchange Group and our friend Don Slavic was out there and uh, they called a breakout uh, meeting of AIEG and it was like five of us that were there. It was obviously a boondoggle to go out there and go to Hawaii. And so the five of us sat in a room and we just talked about these different cases and, and literally I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I said, well, I'm getting ready to try a Dodge fire case. This is that $80 million wow. verdict I, I told you about. And Don says, well, we had one of those seven years ago. And it was a real old truck at the time. And of course, Chrysler had what they call a document retention policy, which is really a document destruction policy. And all their stuff was gone and they hadn't produced anything. And he goes, yeah, we had one of those cases seven or eight years ago. I'll send you the documents. And he sent me just this treasure trove of about 50 documents that was just the best stuff ever. And, you know, I used those documents to get an $80 million verdict. And, and that would have never happened but for Don Slavic having that sharing spirit. And so, you know, uh, I do not think that lawyers uh, should use a success in a case to try to force somebody uh, that wants that information uh, to refer the case in order to get it. You know, you open up your files, uh, you share, share alike, you expect sharing. Uh, and when you get it, we're all better off, and more importantly, our clients are better off. And so, uh, you know, any any deposition I've ever taken, any document I've ever uh, gotten produced is available to anybody. Um, uh, no questions asked, and that's always been our firm's ethos, and, and I hope it'll be everybody else's. We're the same way, and actually what I found is from a marketing perspective, uh, being the person that shares, being the authority that doesn't demand, makes them more likely to come to you when you have the case where it makes sense to do it together. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, the other fun thing about that is is that uh, the kinds of cases that, you know, we typically have done, uh, they're big, expensive uh, technical cases, and there's plenty of work for two to do. And, you know, the one thing I really enjoyed about starting my own firm is uh, I'm not one of these lawyers that accepts referrals and says, get out of my way until I send you a check. Uh, I love working on cases with other lawyers and working on them together. Um, and you make good friendships that, that are lifelong friendships. Uh, you get different perspectives. Uh, I, I've learned a long time ago that my way is not the only way. Uh, and I, I really enjoy trying cases with other lawyers. Uh, and, and so you, you share documents, um, you share information. And if somebody wants to bring you in, great, but, but don't cut them out, especially if it's a young lawyer, it's his, big, you know, his first big case. The, the worst thing you can do is cut them out. That guy Absolutely. will work his, you know, himself to the bone to make sure that case is success. And sometimes I just want a little guidance about how to get there. Yeah. And you don't have to have every case. You don't have time to do every case. No, that's right. I mean, I'm, my, my wife will tell you that I've, I've got way too many cases at all times. Uh, so, you know, just we should all work hard on the cases we have, uh, enjoy the cases we're, we're going after, and, and really use our, our platform as a, as a vehicle to do good. Uh, and it's not, it's not just about the money. It's, it's all about the, uh, the things that we're able to do with the litigation we bring. I mean, I'm, I could take you down to your car right now and, and – walk around that car and show you 30, 40 different safety features uh, that are there directly as a result of litigation that I've brought together with a whole bunch of our friends in, uh, in the automotive defect world. Um, you know, these lawsuits make a difference and they're a force of, uh, to do good. Um, and so that ought to be the primary focus. Absolutely. The money takes care of itself too if you focus on it taking does. care of people. It does. The, um, but one thing as you as you get better, you start getting in more work. You can't do it all yourself. You got to start having other lawyers work for you. Right. And you guys have kept up a pretty high level of practice. How do you get other people, to, lawyers, to do things the way you want it done without, and still have a life and still be able to do the work you want to do in cases? Yeah, it's a, it's a tension. I mean, obviously, uh, most of the cases that come into my law firm come in. Uh, 
you know, because people want me to work on it or Frank to work on it or, you know, one of our senior guys, but you've got young lawyers uh, that need that experience. And so, you know, typically what I try to do uh, is I try to take law clerks, for example, uh, everywhere I go. And I don't stick people into a, a room to do legal research for me. Uh, I, I take them with me. Um, I have large groups of people uh, when I do these big trials, not necessarily because I need large groups of people, but it's part of the training process. And, and particularly since we moved to San Antonio, what I've learned is that it's a tremendous advantage having a law firm in a town with a law school uh, because uh, legal talent is plentiful and it's cheap. Uh, and they're just dying for a chance. And, and I've hired more good lawyers over the last 10 years uh, that, that started off making nothing as a law clerk. And, and I'm not one of these law firms that pays a bunch of money for, for summer clerks. Uh, you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to pay you. I pay them $10 an hour, wow. which is just outrageous. Uh, but I said, I don't need you and, and don't particularly want you. Uh, but if you want the experience, I'll give it to you. And, and as I joke, I give good clerkship. Uh, and, and we drag people around. We put them in responsible positions. And, we, uh, you know, we give them the experience of a lifetime. And then that, that cream rises to the, to the top. You can see it. Um, you know, within two weeks of somebody walking in the door. Our latest uh, lawyer is a young lady named Meredith Drucker, uh, who's taking the bar next summer. And uh, it was a friend of a friend from church asking a favor. And she comes in, and, and inside of about 48 hours, you know. Yeah. And, and you're just like, that's going to be one of my lawyers. And, you know, so that's that's a real advantage. Uh, but but to answer your question, you know, uh, the, the more frequently that person is sitting in a deposition with you, uh, not back at the office doing make work or uh, going through a trial with you, uh, the, the quicker that person's going to be a lawyer that's useful to you. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the best experiences of my life uh, was I was a baby lawyer, and uh, I was carrying David Perry's briefcase as he was trying a case. It was a Ford case uh, against Guy Allison and Daryl Barger. Wow. And it was just a battle royale, and it was the most fun I've ever had. And I just watched. Um, and it, it was just a remarkable experience. Um, but uh, you've got to experience things in order to do it well. And, and the big challenge that we have as a profession is we have an entire generation of lawyers that don't have anything to work on themselves. Um, you know, with the size of cases that we handle, people don't want a first-year lawyer trying that case. It doesn't mean that first-year lawyer can't try it with me and take on, you know, a, a small witness here or there. It's n nothing's going to wreck the case putting on an EMT, uh, you know, in one of these cases or, or putting on a nurse to talk about the pain or this kind of thing. But, but the, the sooner you get those lawyers in a courtroom uh, watching you do the heavy lifting, but they're involved enough that it's not just, uh, you know, a show, uh, the, the, the better those lawyers are going to be, and they're gonna, the more useful they're going to be to you. Yeah. We've been trying to do the same. We're up somehow 10, and I'm about to make an offer to an 11th one uh, later today. Excellent. Uh, yeah. A law clerk, actually. Yeah. Uh, following no. your lead on that, too. Frank Getta, actually, your partner, told me that you all had been doing that, and so I decided to try it. Yeah, it's, it's really been great. I mean, uh, you know, St. Mary's, I think, is an excellent law school, and, and there's a lot of kids over there. And, and you know, it's, it's a real tragedy. Uh, I just read another Grisham book called The Rooster, uh, the Rooster Bar, and it's about a bunch of kids that are just indebted uh, to the student loan system. And, yeah. and, you know, a lot of these kids uh, that are, are going to college and law school, they get out with several hundred thousand dollars in debt. It's a soft job market. Uh, and so what Frank and I have done is, is very intentionally, uh, we, we constantly have clerks uh, at St. Mary's uh, and, and other law schools, but primarily St. Mary's because they're here, uh, and we just put them to work on stuff. And, 
you can really identify talent quickly. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's good for the law firm as well as for the kids. Or something you'd want to share as far as? Well, um, here's what I've learned. Um, as you try to build an empire, um, you've got to maintain quality standards. Um, you know, when, when I built my own law firm from 1997 to 2001, uh, it was largely corpus, and then we acquired a law firm in, in Brownsville. Uh, but my fingerprints were over everything. And then when we started making a lot of money, uh, being the fool that I was, instead of taking it home, uh, I, I turned that into five offices, one in Houston and Austin and San Antonio, McAllen and Brownsville and Corpus, you know. Um, and I made a lot more money with five offices, but I was constantly flying around, uh, overseeing different offices, um, experiencing disappointment uh, when things weren't done the way I would want to do them. Uh, and so, you know, as you grow, uh, you've got to maintain that quality of, of process. Um, and I've found, in retrospect, that that's easier to do with a lot of people in one facility as opposed to different facilities across the state. Um, and so, um, you know, we've got a process. It's not the only process, but, but I think that one big problem that lawyers have is, is – we think in terms of the amount of money that we recover for our clients. Um, I think in terms of how long it takes to get them that amount of money and what's the net to the client. Uh, in other words, if, if we spend three, four, five years uh, and spend a huge amount of money um, gin in the file or hiring too many experts or this or that, uh, and then the client nets out a small amount after five years, that's not really a win for the client. And so uh, when, when I say that I'm much better at settling cases now, um, you've got to get the reputation that you'll try the case. And, and defense lawyers know if you will, and they know if you won't. Uh, and if you will, they'll know that if they don't settle the case, you'll go try it. And, and one of the things that, that you know, I've always tried to do um, is uh, we're not afraid to go take a loss. Uh, you know, people don't remember your losses, but I got plenty of them. These, these fools that run around saying they've never lost a case, it's just idiocy. They're not trying enough of them. I've lost more cases than most people have tried. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you got to go down there and you got to try them, and, and you can't always pick uh, all of your cases, particularly if you've got five offices and, and people, you know, uh, are bringing in cases that, that you wish they hadn't. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know. Uh, Usually it's me bringing in the case I wish I hadn't. Well, yeah, you know, but, but, but now we're, we're a lot better at intake and deciding – what we want to bring and, and you know the challenge is is that um you know we get to be picky um but those cases are going to go somewhere um and you can't do a good job working on all the cases and so you don't want to be a hog uh getting slaughtered because you're trying to grab everything you've got to be selective and, and and do a really good job on what you choose to take in so i'm a much more project-based lawyer than i used to be I, I used to just be you know bring in all the cases and you know churn them and burn them if you will uh but now you know as I've gotten older, um, I tend to do a lot more of these big, massive projects uh, while Frank administers the other half of the firm doing the individual cases. And then, you know, fortunately, I'm still greedy enough that when they when they get close to trial, I'll dive in and, and you know, try to come try the case with them, even though I haven't done a thing on the case. You know, you know I, I found uh, when I dive into a case someone else worked up and I haven't been in the day-to-day -day intricacies of the case and got in all these little fights that don't really matter to a jury, right. uh, 
I think it's an advantage because yeah. you really see it through a fresh set of eyes, just like a jury is going to see it through a fresh I, set of eyes. I agree. You know, my, my old friend, God rest his soul, uh, John O'Quinn, used to pick up a file 48 hours before. I mean, literally the Friday before, and he just had this mind that he can consume things. It takes me a little longer than 48 hours, but, but, but typically I parachute into cases being handled by my other lawyers about two weeks out. Um, and if I know something's coming and it's going to be a hot case, I'll, I'll take a key corporate rep or I'll go take a key expert. Um, but most of the cases that I try that aren't my own, uh, you know, I've done very little. Um, but when you come in, you really see the forest from the trees. Um, and, and, you know, somebody that's worked on a file and taken 50 depositions, um, a lot of times you just lose what it is, you know, what's the story of the case? What, what is it that makes it a good case? What's simple about it? Uh, whereas if you come at the end and you read everything, you can really separate the wheat from the chaff and, and you know, try it in a simplistic way that makes a lot of sense. As long as you have good people that can work it up right on Yeah, you know, and, and you know, fortunately, uh, you know, the, probably the most fun I've ever had as a lawyer, not as a husband, but uh, is, is when we did have 30 lawyers in five offices and I was set for trial three times a week, every week. Um, and, you know, you, you try a bunch of cases, you can figure out who your good lawyers are in a hurry and you get rid of your bad ones. Um, but, you know, the, one of the challenges of being a trial lawyer is, is it's, it's not a free lunch. Uh, there are uh, people at home that are not seeing you. Um, and, you know, a wife that uh, isn't seeing you, kids that are growing up without you. Uh, I got in a fight with Ford uh, in 2005. Um, and I felt like they weren't paying enough money anymore after, you know, these wild successes we'd had in the Ford Firestone days. And, you know, I was egotistical and braggadocious and, and you know, thought I was the guy uh, and, and literally screamed at a, a Ford lawyer and said I wasn't going to talk to him anymore. Uh, and he said, well, I'm your settlement lawyer. And I said, no, you're not. You're not settling anything with me for the rest of the year. And I stormed out. And... Uh, when you make a threat like that, you better be ready to follow up because uh, we got to try six Ford cases in eight months, and those are five- and six-week-long trials. And at the end of those eight months, I had $8.5 million in my client ledger uh, with Ford cases alone and no money coming in. And uh, I had $110 million in verdicts, uh, but it, that's no way to live a life. <laughs> and so you know, I come home thinking that, uh, you know, I'm some Roman warrior coming back through the city gates, you know, entitled to adulation and fanfare. And my wife says, you idiot, you haven't seen your kids all year. You were in trial 43 weeks this year. <laughs> yeah, you know, I you guess know. it is the other perspective. I, I was all excited. I had a, this week, I had a Minnesota lawyer refer me a case that happened in Wisconsin. So, you know, someone trying to grow the practice, like, come on, honey, I got a case in Wisconsin. The lawyer in Minnesota heard of me and he said it over and she's like, so how much are you going to be on the road? You're going to be in Wisconsin. How long is that going to take? It's like, okay. Yeah, yeah you, mentioned, you mentioned me flying around in jets. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is, is, is if you're going to practice out of state, uh, it's like a car. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the air three and a half days a week. Uh, my wife and I have a deal that I'm not gone more than two nights a week uh, unless I'm in trial. Um, and you can't do that without that airplane. But um, You can't. But it, it comes with a cost, you know, and, and – uh, to this day, I refuse to have internet access on my airplane because I don't need to be up there surfing the internet. I need to be working. Uh, and, and you can get a lot of work done while you're flying around, but those are hours you're away from your wife and your family. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sacrifice. It is. And as it happens, 
uh, we do some work for Valero, uh, which is a San Antonio-based company, and it's the only company that I really uh, do consistent work for. I don't I don't represent them against injured people, but company on company stuff, you know, this kind of thing. So I've tried, uh, you know, handle some cases for them, and they wanted me to handle a dispute that they had out in Northern California against PG&E, which is a utility out there, and shut off their power, and uh, their refinery went down, and it mucked up all the pipes and cost them a whole lot of money. And we were up there focus group in a case. Um, and uh, those wildfires had just happened. Uh, it was in October, and I started reading about it, and I just got transfixed. Uh, and so literally the last several months, uh, I've been in Northern California. We have an office in Santa Rosa, California, and we're representing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have been burned out of their house and home uh, by this fire that we say that PG&E started. Uh, so that's that's my project of the day right now is, is Northern California wildfires, okay. uh, you know, which is a, a real tragedy. It is, and yeah. that's... And let's say someone knows someone that lost their home uh, or business in the Northern California wildfire. How would they get a hold of you or your firm to get you involved? Well, um, we're on the internet, watsgira.com. Uh, we have an office in Santa Rosa at 70 Stony Point Road, or you can call 444-444. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, um, you know, something out in Santa Rosa. We're out there pretty persistently. We've got a lot of people out there working on it because it's a real tragedy. I mean, I thought it when I went up there, I thought it was going to be a lot like what happened in South Texas after Hurricane Harvey. Uh, you know, you got 80, 100,000 people that have lost their houses. They have all, all got this blank look on their face. Um, but I quickly realized it wasn't even close to the same because the people in Texas had five days to get out. They watched water rise slowly. These people had five minutes to get out, uh, running away from a 50-foot wall of fire. Uh, and so there's just a lot of post-traumatic stress up there. Um, you know, the, the neighborhoods look like, you know, something Dresden in 1943. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable, the death and destruction. So how do you, you know, how do you make that jump from, you know, there's the first jump from just being able to handle a big case with a, you know what we call a single event case, right. uh, but then making that big jump to handling a mass tragedy where you're you got got to figure out well, is this a good thing to get into or not because it's going to take a lot of your time and treasure. You've got to figure out how am I going to manage all these people. I mean, how do you how did you make that transition? Well, it was it was a trial and error. Uh, I was doing individual personal injury, primarily product liability cases, one by one by one. Um, and there was a, a sequence of events that happened that kind of led me into the mass torts that I'm, you know, kind of specialized in right now. Um, number one, as we were doing uh, these individual torts, my first boss, David Perry, said he wanted to take a six-month sabbatical and would I take over three of his cases because he wasn't going to be able to do it. And he, he wanted to travel the world with his wife, and I said yes, just out of blind allegiance. Uh, one of them was a seatbelt buckle case, uh, and two of them were tire cases against a company called Firestone. And they didn't look like very good cases to me, but I did it because uh, Perry asked me to. And... Um, it, as it happened, the Attorney's Information Exchange Group was meeting in San Antonio, and so I called a, a subgroup meeting um, and just asked them, can we have one of these things like what we did with Don Slavic, where five or six of us compare notes about these cases? And so the people at AIG called a subgroup meeting uh, for Firestone Tires, and literally I thought there would be five or six people there. And 
I was told she, that there was going to be more people than expected, but I didn't know what that meant. And I walked in, and it was the largest conference room at the Hyatt downtown on the Riverwalk here in San Antonio, and it had 300 people in it. Oh, wow. And I realized that we had stumbled across, you know, in effect, a mass tort in the vehicular context. So we organized all of that. Um, we had done that in the Chrysler minivan litigation in the 1990s, and I started to realize that, you know, these product failures tend to happen to many people at once, and so you need to organize it and be able to handle that. Um, and then over the next three or four years, uh, I was trying a lot of the first cases in the country involving medical products and drugs. Uh, and part of the reason for that was is that um, the county courts and the district courts in Oasis County and Corpus Christi, where I was from, they have concurrent jurisdiction. Uh, and so we were able to get those cases to trial in lightning speed, and it drove the MDL guys crazy because they like to, you know, build common benefit time over the course of several years, and you know, and and I would just set it for trial and and go, and they'd just go nuts. But then we kept hitting these huge verdicts, and they didn't understand who is this young guy in Corpus Christi. <clears throat> so um, I, I quickly learned that. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry in this country as of about 1994 had the ability to fast track a lot of drugs and get them out and that's got a that's got a positive societal benefit but uh, it also leads to mistakes and so there are a lot of recalls so I got into pharmaceuticals and I quickly realized that while I knew how to try a pharmaceutical case I didn't know how to handle hundreds or thousands of them at once um, my older brother uh, was vice president of a software company, and I asked him to come join me, and he built uh, all of our databases from scratch, all of our systems from scratch, uh, and filed, uh, I think it was 3,000 FinFin cases in four months. Wow. Uh, and so we kind of t taught ourselves how to do it and uh, spent millions of dollars on a proprietary software uh, that can handle hundreds of thousands of people at once. Uh, so we built the systems capability, and then it's just a manpower deal and, and organization. Uh, but you know, the, the cases aren't any different. There's, you know, we may think of them as a bellwether case that, uh, you know, is one of the um, test cases, if you will, for thousands of cases behind it. That one jury is still one jury deciding one dispute, and, and they've got to be tried uh, with, you know, complex stuff being simplified and stories being told by good lawyers. Uh, so that part's not any different. They're, they're big cases. They have much bigger financial consequences because you've got millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars and thousands of cases behind them, but you still got to go and win that one case. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, you know, the part of it, the trying it really would attract me, the having to manage ten or 20,000 clients at once and communicate with them and try to keep them happy and trying to not go bankrupt while you're funding this thing is uh something yeah I'm, I'm not in that world yet but well, god bless you for doing it and i'm glad you're doing it but uh it's uh it's it's you've had to delay a lot of gratification i mean you could have just kind of cashed in and stopped working and you said you decided to do that stuff and it, what drives you it can't just be the money because at some point you know when you can live in whatever house you want to live in it's paid off you can go wherever you want to go eat wherever you want to eat it, it doesn't make much of a difference in your daily life to have more money what is it that kind of drives you to keep doing you know, I, th I think that, that the good Lord has put certain instincts in human beings. And, you know, I think there's three of them that, I, that come to mind. One of them is faith and passing it along to our kids. Uh, one of them is sex, uh, that need to procreate to keep the, the species going. Uh, and one of them is hunt. Um, you know, somebody's got to go hunt for the food. And I think it's, I think it's in our bones, in our, in our being. Uh, and what we do is hunt. Uh, and, and trying these cases uh, is part of that instinctive uh, hunting uh, nature that we have. And, and I enjoy the hunt. Uh, and I enjoy the kill. 
Um, and, and I really think that's what drives me is, is these cases are big projects um, against massive entities with all the resources in the world. And there's just something beautiful about uh, a trial lawyer being able to take the poorest of the poor and put them on an equal footing with the richest of the rich. Um, and, and to see the terror in the, the eyes of these people that are so arrogant um, and, and think they're entitled to do whatever they do, uh, regardless of who it hurts. Uh, and stopping that. But but then the other thing that I really believe in uh, is properly managed litigation can do great things. Uh, one of those three clients that David Perry gave me was a lady named Vicki Hendricks, whose boy was killed uh, when his Firestone tire detreaded and his Ford Explorer rolled over. And she was violently angry uh, about it. And, and of course, I would be too if my son was killed. Uh, and she swore to me that she would never settle her case unless they recalled the tire. And I remember rolling my eyes at the time, says nobody ever recalled a product because of a single lawsuit. Uh, but when, three, when 300 of us got together, uh, it led to a lot of pressure, a worldwide you know, recall of those tires, 17 million tires recalled. Uh, so you know, there's a lot of good that can happen when lawyers get organized. Um, you know, it, it's kind of that deal about why did you go to law school? It wasn't just because of the money. You know, right now, one of our new projects is we're getting involved in the opioid litigation. Um, and it's it's so intoxicating to see three or 400 lawyers from across the United States get organized. Uh, and it's kind of our generation cigarette litigation. Um, it's a public health epidemic. Uh, and it's killing more people than anything uh, right now. And, and We've so, lost two clients this year to yeah. opioid. Oh, it's just outrageous. And it's got an $85 billion a year societal cost. And so uh, we're organizing with a whole bunch of other lawyers. Uh, an MDL just uh, got got uh, uh, appointed. Uh, it's in the Northern District of Ohio in the Cleveland area. A plaintiff steering committee is being put together. And you know, my guess would be we'll probably be on it. Uh, but then you're going to invest tens of millions of dollars over the next, this will probably take five, six years. Um, but uh, if we can take down the opioids fraud, uh, which has got tens of thousands of Americans hooked every year, uh, I think that's doing good. Uh, and, and the fact that you're doing well while doing good, uh, I guess is fine. But, uh, but uh, all you have to do is look at the, the smoking rates in this country versus where they were 20 years ago before some very gutsy lawyers took on an industry that had never paid a dime in litigation and took them down. Yeah. Um, uh, they saved a bunch of lives. Uh, they made a bunch of money while doing it, but they saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever, which is good. And so hopefully we'll do that for opioids as well. Just kind of to, to wrap it up, what are some of the, for trial lawyers, the future opportunities you see for us and then future threats? Well, um, the threats are everywhere. Um, access to the courts took a big hit on November the 8th of last year. Uh, there are bills uh, going through the United States Congress uh, that are drafted by the American Tort Reform Association. Um, that are getting through committees without even a committee hearing. Uh, no testimony being taken, no debate. Uh, it's just passed on a party line vote. There's no debate on the floor of the House. Uh, there are bills that have passed the House of Representatives that nobody's even heard about um, that would just wipe out uh, tort liability in this country. Um, and so, you know, there's enormous threats uh, to trial lawyers legislatively. Um, Obviously, here in Texas, uh, we have a similar threat in that uh, we have a 
Texas Supreme Court uh, that is bought and paid for. Um, those people are put on there uh, for a specific reason, um, and they execute on that reason. Uh, they take out verdicts for no reason. They rewrite the law. It's the most activist court I've ever seen, and I used to serve as a briefing attorney on it back when it was a 5-4 court. Um, you know, massive frauds excused, um, huge product failures excused, uh, all sorts of, of gift wrap, candy wrapped uh, sweeteners for corporate America just over and over and over again. It is a disgrace. Uh, and so the Texas Supreme Court um, is, is not a court so much as it is uh, a, um, a line of last defense for corporate America. Um, uh, how those guys can wake up every morning and continually uh, put themselves in an ivory tower and ignore uh, a Seventh Amendment result of what 12 people uh, who take their time and do their constitutional duties to serve as a jury uh, and come up with a result and these guys just wipe it out like it never happened. Uh, that's an assault. And so, uh, and then legislatively here in Texas, um, you know, you have uh, systemically billionaires in this state that fund um, uh, TLR, Texans for Lawsuit Reform. It has nothing to do with reform. We've had 25 years of reform. Every year, come up with a new and innovative way to limit uh, their liability for their tortious conduct. Um, and um, that's going to be a problem. Um, but what I've learned uh, is the, the biggest threat to trial lawyers is themselves. And what I mean by that is, is that um, we allow ourselves to fall into a psychosis about how tough it is and how much easier it was 25 years ago. Uh, and when I started, uh, everybody was complaining about how hard it was then and how much easier it was back in the 1980s. And, and what I've learned is, is that as it gets more difficult, uh, we need to rise to the challenge. And as long as we rise to the challenge, uh, our clients are gonna do very well. But um, there's so many people that refuse to go to trial now because they're convinced that the jury pool's been tainted, uh, that there's no way you're gonna get a fair trial. And, and, and what I've experienced over and over and over again, uh, is that I don't care how conservative the juries are, um, whether they vote Republican or Democratic, uh, every one of them shows up for court. Uh, they're pissed off about having to be there on the first day. Uh, they give you the groans and the moans when they're selected to that jury. Uh, and they're just, you know, they can't believe how unlucky they were. But almost uniformly, uh, once they're sworn in and they start it, uh, they rise to the challenge. Uh, and and ordinary people off the streets that don't know each other form this beautiful thing known as a jury where they are a cohesive judge of uh, a set of facts and almost at least in my cases almost unanimously when you're done whether you've won or lost they all appreciate having been involved in the process uh, and i've learned that most judges are trying to do the right thing regardless of their political ideology republican democrat alike um, and juries uh, are, are certainly a group of people that can be counted upon uh, to weigh facts and, and, and do well. And so, you know, it's, it's a system that's fraught full of risk because of the appellate risk, but at the same time, um, the idea that you can't go in front of a jury in 2017 and get a, a fair and, and just verdict is, uh, that's just not true. It's still true today as much as it was in 1989 when I first became a lawyer. I agree. I think you're just learning to, to trust the people on the jury is so important. Our last, my last trial, I mean, it was a broken leg. And, and honestly, a week before trial, I was not real happy about trying the case. Someone yeah. else had worked it up. I didn't think it was a very good case. Um, and my jury, the foreman was an active duty Marine. We had a, an engineer. We had a doctor's office manager. We had a sheriff's deputy. If you 
looked at the demographics, you would have said, you know, Cowan, why did you take this jury? And, and I took, I didn't strike those people because I talked to them and listened to them and just could tell that they had an open mind. And we got a great verdict. We got a million and a quarter on $44,000 in medical bills. I remember it. Um, and, but because we trusted the jury and we had a good story. And yes, a lot, a lot of those people vote Republican. A lot of those people are very conservative. But, you know, the truth is the truth and justice is justice. And I found that, yeah, is it harder now than it was 25 years ago? Probably. But for those of us that make it, a lot of people, there's a lot less competition, too. Uh, there's a lot less people trying to do this, and there's you know opportunities for those that are willing to take chances and work hard and, and do it right. Yeah, you know, I stopped counting the number of cases I tried a decade ago, but it's got to be in the hundreds. Um, and I don't know how many I've won and how many I've lost. I don't keep track of it, but what I do keep track of is the number of times uh, after you've won or you've lost and you go home and you evaluate um, – most of the times when you lose, within about a week, it's pretty clear why you lost and, oh, I should have thought of that at the start, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, but out of several hundred jury verdicts, I can only think of three where it just sticks in my craw and I think the jury did the wrong thing. Um, and, and those are pretty good odds, you know. Um, if you go down there and you, and you let the jury decide, more often than not, they're going to do the right thing. And, we might not like it, but it's going to be the right thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Of course. And, uh, Look forward to continuing our friendship. Absolutely, buddy. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Michael Watts. He was incredibly forthcoming. It's not all the kind of chest pounding and I'm so great that you sometimes get from, from people who are successful. I think he was incredibly down to earth and honest about the pros and cons of the of the life and the costs of success as well as what he's done to make it. I hope it was useful to you. We're going to have another great guest, a man named Tim Mackey from Vista Consulting. Now, you may or may not have heard of Tim or Vista Consulting, but Vista Consulting is actually a company that my law firm uses and it's done incredible work for us. Vista Consulting helps plaintiff's lawyers manage their practices so that you can get things done and still have a life because, you know, I want to be a big trial lawyer. I want to get all the big cases, but I also want to see my kids on the weekend, and I also want to have money in the bank. Tim's helped me do that, and I think he's got some things that could help you too. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing hosts and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.